0: You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. First broadcast on the 29th of August 2021 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and Zurich. And you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, coming up on today's programme. My guests, Florian Egley and Simon Brooke, will be going through the weekend papers and picking out their highlights. Florian, what have you found?
1: So we're going to Switzerland, Swiss sneaker producer On is going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange and we're going to hear how many sneakers are produced globally per year. It's absolutely astonishing. Also we're going up north, the furthest northern island has been discovered by a Swiss and Danish team. It hasn't got a name yet, maybe we'll find one.
0: Thank you so much for that. We'll also be bouncing across to the Balkans to see what's making the news there.
1: What have Europe's first lithium mine and Boise
2: from Only Fools and Horses got in common? The answer is, they're both big in Serbia. Find out more with Monocle's Man in the Balkans. That's me, Guy Zalornay.
0: We'll be hearing more from Guy a little later. Plus, Tessa Shishkowitz, the UK correspondent for Profile magazine, tells us what's in the pages of her publication this weekend. It's the 29th of August 2021. We might even have a check-in from our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, too. So stay tuned for Monocle on Sunday.
3: Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson.
0: And a very good morning to you and welcome. I'm joined in the studio here in London by Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Good morning, Simon.
3: Good morning, Emma.
0: And in Zurich, Florian Egli, senior associate at the Swiss foreign policy think tank Voraus. He's standing by Manning the Fort at Dufourstrasse 90. Good morning, Florian.
1: Good morning, Emma.
0: I trust all is well. But first, before we start diving into what's happening in your worlds, let's go back to um, a lay-by just south of the uh, Swiss border with Italy to hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who's en route back to Zurich, having had rather a, a marvellous weekend in or not marvellous time in, um, in Italy and going to medieval fairs. Is that right?
4: Not quite, just, just <laughs> passing them. Uh, we had our own fare to, to get to, Emma. So I, I hightailed it over the Offen Pass yesterday. And uh, yesterday evening, uh, we hosted about 100 people at our little outpost um, in Milano in uh, in Citroën. So uh, a very nice party had by all.
0: It sounds absolutely wonderful, although I am absolutely devastated that you didn't have a hog roast. Um, I don't know, you might have had a hog roast. Um, tell me, how is life in, in, in Italy at the moment? I mean, we are seeing just such joy and resurgence and, and bouncing back in a, in, a, in, a, in a country that's just clearly enjoying itself at the moment.
4: Absolutely. Well, here, and you have to remember, I'm, I'm in Sucirol. So, of course, Sucirol is, is uh, something a little bit apart uh, from, from Italy. Uh, of course, our listeners will know that it is an autonomous region. It is a, a German and Italian speaking. Uh, we shouldn't forget Ladino as well, Uh, region uh, of the country. And it it is its own little enclave. It's its own special world. It has its own special uh, rules uh, as well. But as you were saying, there is an incredible bounce back. And here's the amazing thing. Speaking to hoteliers, and this is a region, um, if its economy is not driven by apples and wine, then it's certainly driven by tourism. And I was talking to a couple of hoteliers over the last 24 hours, and they said they've had a record year. Here you're talking about family businesses, Emma. You know, people have had hotels in their in their families for a 100, 120 years, uh, and this has been the best summer in history. So it's just remarkable to hear this. And of course, we know a lot of that is just driven by the fact that domestic tourism—whether people are coming from Austria or from Germany or from Italy or across the border from Switzerland—you know, they don't want to to go far. They've maybe not been heading off uh, to the likes of, of Tanzania or Morocco, so they've been staying close by, and that means that all of those, probably those smaller periods, those two or three nights gaps that you might have between weekends, those have also been filled up as well.
0: What kind of people are coming I mean, You mentioned the idea of local and domestic tourism, but have they seen any kind of shift in the, in the kind of people who are coming?
4: Well, I was talking to the, the owners of the, the very nice Villa Arnica and the Reichhalter, and they've also got the, the Schwarzmeet. I could highly recommend that uh as maybe a little bit of an escape for the uh the 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 nelson family clan we can come back to that in a moment but then they said also u.s tourists uh some very very hardcore uh monocle readers uh who uh, were, were, were spotted um head to toe as someone said they were so hardcore they even had the passport holders
0: Goodness me! Actually, I've got the passport as well, holder as well, but I, I suppose I should do. Um,
4: Very well, handy.
0: One thing that I've always found that I found strange recently in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I I, I escaped the borders and went to Spain a few weeks ago, and you had this really odd feeling that when you were wandering around in your swimming costume and your nice towel, then everybody was practically, you know, stripped down to their undies, but they were wearing masks as well. And Simon Brook, you want you wanted to join in the fun here and ask Tyler about that? Well, I'm just
3: wondering, Tyler, yeah, I mean, I've really noticed a, a falling off of masks here in London, quite literally as well as sort of metaphorically, if you like. And I just wondered, yeah, I mean, it sounds absolutely idyllic there. I wish I was there with you, but I just wondered, how's it going with sort of masks and social distancing and, and hand sanitising and all that business? Are people doing it?
4: It's a it's a pretty mixed um, mixed platter at least in this part of Italy um, as well. So there's a mask requirement in uh, in in restaurants and and in shops. But even then, I would say, Simon, it's it's pretty it's pretty lax. And I think the same thing, Lauren. You can probably say that you know the same from from a Swiss point of view as well. There is a mask mandate uh, now. They would probably you know they would tell you to put it on. Um, if you were in a major grocery store or something, but you feel you go to a lot of restaurants, et cetera, this idea that you can sit down, you can be at a table of 20, um, and then you have to put the mask on just to go you know, two steps to the bathroom. You feel, and I almost, I almost sort of wonder, you know, Simon and Emma, that you know, governments are just going to, <laughs> this will just sort of, in a way, almost organically Go away without without a mandate uh, for it, but but let's see.
0: It's very much the, the, the feeling here that yes, I think organically is a very polite way of of, of, of of explaining what we're doing. But but talking a little bit more about hospitality, I mean, what a hoteliers is doing to make sure that people do feel as if they feel welcome and they feel as if you can have your your holiday and you can have your break, and it and and what's happening in the outside world is completely by the by. It's it's gone away, and and you're you're in your wonderful little you know your holiday. Bubble and everything is fine. Uh, Hotelers, hoteliers, having to sort of navigate a new path with this, like building bigger spaces.
4: No, it, it doesn't seem like it. And we had a we had a big tavolata last night. There was twenty five of us at a big long table uh, in in this wonderful garden at the Villa Arnica, and it, it was fantastic. There were other guests at the hotel as well. It's a very small property, but there's no sense of, of social distancing. There's no sense of tables being. Uh, pushed apart. I mean, any of that kind of, yeah, sort of, there's, there's a weird, awkward sort of pauses and gaps that we've experienced over the last year and a half. That seems to really all all, all fallen away. We know, of course, there are pockets of it uh, that still exist. I did go by a restaurant uh, yesterday and, and still saw some plexiglass dividers up, but they seem sort of like a a bit of a hangover from, from another era.
0: Guess what? Normal life is back and it's good, isn't it? Let's talk <laughs> it about, is Let's good. <laughs> isn't it lovely? Let's talk about um, normal life returning to Salone as well. I mean, this is, this is a slight change in Milan this year with Super Salone, but we, we're on our way. Monocle, Monocles, the camels are being packed up and heading to Milan this week, aren't they?
4: They are. They're heading over the Alps uh, from from Zurich and Murano uh, and, and other outposts indeed. So at this time next week, I mean, I, I, I imagine... The trains uh, and, of course, uh, Maltese and then at the airports they're going to be very busy. People will be descending on mm-hmm. Milan. And this is, it's, you know, it's really exciting. You have to give sort of full credit to the Italians. They pulled off, of course, the return of, of the Venice Biennale. That was, uh, of course, a great start. And now here you have a major uh, you know, industrial fair, a major design fair, and really one of the most important dates on the, the convention and fair calendar you know you could say in the middle of europe and it's a smaller edition as you said emma um but there's a great energy and you know, americans uh and certainly people from all over europe i've, I've even seen uh, a number of japanese uh you know, uh, exhibitors and also buyers who are showing up so it's just it's, it's a great marker that this is going to happen again there are still a lot of rules about how are you going to have a party and how you can have great gatherings etc but again i think this is also the good side of italy uh, I think that uh, there's probably going to be a sense of maybe not paying uh, such close attention. I don't think you'd have people with a clicker at the door counting how many people are, are going to be attending. And from our side, uh, so listeners, if anyone is in Milan a week from now, next Sunday evening, uh, we're doing something with uh, with USM of Switzerland, of course, um, the wonderful storage system makers and Rossignoli you know, Bikes. So we've got um, a wonderful pop up uh, in their space. Um, and, it's, and it's also going to be the anchor point um, as well for, for Monocle 24. So, our coverage uh, from next, uh, next weekend onwards uh, will be coming uh, out of Milan. So we've, we're setting up a very nice audio post and we'll be there broadcasting from Sunday. All the way through to, uh, to to next Thursday.
0: Wonderful. And briefly, before you go, because I don't want the traffic police giving you and any dirty looks. Well,
4: um, Someone some, 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 some dodgy in a Volkswagen just pulled up behind us, so I'm going to have to get behind the wheel again. Okay,
0: <laughs> times against us. <laughs> do you have, before Mr. or Mrs. Volkswagen comes and has a word? Do we have time to talk about the fact that the, the camels and the whole the, the the whole monocle charabang is 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 getting on its swim gear and and going over to Athens Athens next month.
4: Yes, absolutely. So the Monocle Quality of Life conference is just a month away. In fact, you're talking about swimsuits. It'll be, it'll be four weeks from today uh, that we will uh, hopefully be somewhere um, in the med uh, wrapping up, which will have been uh, a fantastic uh, three, three-day conference. So uh, 23rd, 24th, and 25th of September 24th is going to be uh, the major conference day. 30 speakers coming from all over the world. And talking about, of course, you know the issues that are core to us—quality of life, of course, quality of life—as uh, it impacts and affects the urban environment. And Athens is, you know, is a bit of a, a bit of a shift for us. We've always done it in very predictably, uh, you could say, uh, almost, yeah, you know, the, the, those top five, those top ten cities that always do very well. And of course, you've been um, at, at some of the, you know to some of those. Um, cities as well. When we've delivered the conference, so we're talking, of course, the Berlin's, the Vienna's, the Zurich's, uh, the Lisbon's, and now now we're in a city which has no shortage of of, of urban challenges, uh, and and of course economic ones as well. But there's an extraordinary bounce back. We want to be there to celebrate all of that, and um, it's um, it's and again, it's just remarkable. You look at the delegates coming, the people who are already buying tickets. It's the U.S. I mean, the Amer- America sort of leads the way. Uh, and, and you really see that uh, the U.S., of course, other markets, but but very much led by um, the United States is is out there in the forefront.
0: It's all going to be very, very exciting. Tyler, i better let you get back in your car before the Volkswagen uh, has a word. Uh, that was our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, on the border between Swiss, Switzerland and Italy in a lay-by. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Joining me in the studio this morning, Simon Brick in London and Florian Egli in Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich. Florian, how's your week been?
1: It's been very good, it's been a bit grey, and it's been the return from the holidays, so it's always a, a rough start, but I've, I've managed okay so far.
0: You managed to do, uh, we was, before we came on air, you were saying that you went, um, you did a wedding crawl across Europe. Is there, is there a sense now that everybody is just kicking off and kicking back a bit? I mean, Tyler just gave the impression now that everything is just back on and, and wow in, in such a way.
1: I think we've just we have so many friends who were just waiting for that window right and to get married to throw a party you know to organize a big get together so this has really been the uh the summer although it hasn't been that re- summery but it has been the summer of festivities you know we've we've been to so many gatherings parties and now three weddings in three countries in in just under 3 weeks so we've we've been wedding touring yes
0: Goodness me, I can't imagine what the change of outfits must have been like. Simon, I, I was lucky enough, I went to an outdoor concert last night. There were 10,000 of us all sitting under the stars enjoying music. And I must confess, you know, some of us shed a little tear when we saw the fact that we were, we were everything's back.
3: Yeah, it, it it is quite emotional, isn't it? I think in some ways. I mean, I, I have to say, I after after the last lockdown when we were released, I suffered a little bit of agoraphobia. You know, just getting on the tube or whatever, going out and seeing friends and seeing like tall buildings and so many people around me it was a bit uh, was a bit too much in some ways. But yeah, I think emotional. I mean, even just the uh, the monocle party here uh, last week, it was just lovely to actually be doing that party thing and and uh, actually seeing people face to face and remembering how we do these normal things that we've done for our whole lives and then were suddenly snatched away from us and yeah i think it is uh, quite quite emotional yeah
0: i found it quite astonishing how much we have forgotten lockdown isn't the human isn't the human being wonderful florian that you know i now forget to take my mask out when i go out and no one really minds and 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 last night no one would ever have thought that anything bad had happened it was just normal
1: i agree and i mean that's great and so i think i'm a bit torn be- in, you know between in, in this should we forget everything or not i mean um in, in, on the one hand i think in these social interactions you know i i really appreciate it and i think it's absolutely great and it brings so much life um back to our society and 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 you know emotional um kind of well-being so that that's absolutely great Um, but then I think there are some you know some lessons to be drawn as a society from this whole thing not just in terms of public health you know more broadly in terms of you know how we engage with the environment you know what we like what we consume you know how we move about all of these things Um, and I think there were really interesting conversations you know starting to kind of come towards the center um, of attention of society and politics and I fear a bit that that is you know going to dissipate as well and just, you know, um, going to flow away um, as, you know, we move back into our normal lives. So I hope, you know, that on a personal level, um, that's going to continue. But on a more political and societal level, um, there will be some, some memory points that, that we, we retain and, you know, keep discussing.
0: Do you think there will be Simon, or will the lessons learned be lessons immediately forgotten? Because we're just so glad it's gone. Or I mean, it hasn't gone, and it's there. Are, it's still present, but psychologically, we've made an here in Europe, at least, we've made an, an enormous leap in the last couple of months.
3: We have, and I agree with Florian. I think definitely. I, I think. I think we can't. You know, millions of people lost their lives because of this terrible. Uh, disease, this terrible virus, and other people have lost their businesses. People have suffered mental health problems. I think the idea that we just sort of forget it, well a few, that's over, draw a line under the sand, and carry on as we were pre-pre uh, virus, I think would just be wrong. I mean, we've, you know, people have suffered, but but some good things have happened. Like you say, Florin, people have been thinking perhaps about the environment and things, and so yeah, I think we need to to move on definitely and be optimistic. But I think we've got to learn some lessons, and I think it would only be be sort of morally right as well as sort of practical as well wouldn't it if we then say we're going to make try and build back better to use that uh, well-worn phrase you know and to make the world a better place afterwards be that um, more sustainable more sort of equality perhaps um, thinking about work-life balance all those sort of things um, you know I think yeah we, we've got a we've got a sort of show that we've learned something from this terrible experience.
0: Florian let's have a look at the papers what have you found?
3: I've got three stories. So I've got business, I've got
1: discovery, and I've got politics. Where do you want to start?
0: Oh, let's start. Oh, your favorite. What's
1: that? (laughs) Oh, my favorite. I think we'll we'll start with discovery. Um, So this is just a very small um, story that a Swiss and a Danish expedition found the northernmost island in this world, north of Greenland. Um, and so this is actually not very relevant, you know, because it's basically a rock. It's a couple of meters. I think it's like 20 time on, on 30 meters or something. They said they had to check whether there were ice bears before they could land in the helicopter. Um, but it was a pleasant three degrees when they landed, so it, it seemed to be OK. Um, but what I found interesting is two things. One is, Um, The geopolitical dimensions of this, because as we know, of course, the Arctic is kind of um, a place that will be more and more battled, um, you know, between Russia, Canada, and the US, um, as you know, it frees up as the ice kind of melts, and it becomes more accessible, potentially there are resources. And now, of course, Denmark claims this um, point, this piece of land, and therefore also kind of the European Union will be involved and will be more involved in the Arctic. So I think there is quite some um, geopolitical dimensions. And the other thing is this little rock needs a name. And so they've come up with... um, which in Greenlandic is the northernmost island. So I think we can do better than that.
0: That's going to have an interesting airport code. <laughs> a bit, yeah.
3: There's a Indeed. lovely picture of it, I have to say, just looking at the, uh, the garden. What does it look Lauren? like, it looks,
0: Simon? Describe it to us. All, you haven't quite all, booked our trip all white out It's
3: and, white and icy and covered in, uh, uh, surrounded by... Uh, uh, by um, icebergs, isn't it? I mean, I'm presuming one of the reasons why they found this, unfortunately, is because of melting icebergs, is it? But um, it's just amazing to think there are still bits of the world we didn't know existed. It
0: is wonderful. It? And, but, but what is slightly disheartening, Florian, it's this crazy <laughs> d- diplomatic geopolitical land grab that now occurs. And that's my rock. It's it's just an astonishing way of, of, of thinking about something that I would sometimes just like to think, wouldn't it be just nice to leave it well alone and let it carry on doing what it was doing before?
1: Yeah, it would be. Right, and just you know, kind of take it out of all these these geopolitical struggles for resources and and whatnot. So, um, but I think I'm afraid it's not going to happen, even though it's a it's a it's a tiny rock. You know, the picture shows it.
0: So, do we know what plans are for the for the unpro- unpronounceable uh, uh, island? Well, it is clearly <laughs> pronounceable, but I think it takes a bit of a run-up. If
3: you're, if you're, yeah, no, I, haven't really got, I haven't got it written in front
0: <laughs>
1: of me. I, I, didn't you copy it? No, <laughs> I'm a hundred percent sure. I completely mispronounced it as well. Um, no, but you know it's it's interesting because it's kind of like this. We thought that the area of discovery was over, and now climate change kind of changes the, the landscape of of the Earth, of planet Earth, so much that discovery becomes a new thing again. And if we remember historically, you know, every discovery was also kind of fraught with you know um, a lot of a lot of dispute, potentially even war about who owns the territory. And now um, we see similar things because it's of course Greenland, and then the next thing is you know is Greenland Denmark or not? So I mean. There is going to be a lot of discussions, I think, about who actually this rock belongs to and who claims this rock, both in terms of, you know, being close to resources, in terms of like internal politics in Denmark, in terms of how much the EU gets involved. So yeah, I I would, you know, agree with you, Emma, it would be nice if that that remained just a piece of nature. But uh, I think, unfortunately, it will become a geopolitical rock.
0: Um, We need to uh, cover the enormous events of what's happened in in Afghanistan for the last week. I mean, they are making the absolute headlines everywhere, aren't they, Simon? The the British papers especially are really engaging in some terrible, terrible soul-searching.
3: Yes, I mean, yeah, there's a connection probably here about sort of um, fighting over a piece of territory or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. But this real question now about... um, what happened about uh, the evacuation of Britons and also af- of Afghans as well. Very much a blame game. Yes, exactly. As you say, the Sunday Times leading with a big story on what it describes as a vitriolic blame game, which has erupted in, in the heart of government over efforts to save thousands more Afghans who are trapped at the mercy of the Taliban. And um, the, the the Ministry of Defence has claimed that Operation Pitting, which is the largest British evacuation since the Second World War, has saved some Fifteen thousand people, including five thousand Britons and their families, plus more than eight thousand Afghan former uh, and former, U- former UK staff uh, Afghans working for the for the British. Um, I think what really comes across from this and criticism of the British Foreign Secretary Dominic Rabb, which again echoes something, you know, criticism of, of the the US as well, is a sort of lack of support for and coordination. Uh, with third countries to take uh, refugees. Um, according to the Sunday Times, for instance, the Pakistani government has claimed that uh, Dominic Rabb had showed no interest in talking to them, claiming that he didn't make a single phone call to the Afghan or Pakistani foreign ministers in the six months before the crisis. So, um, yeah I mean we saw those terrible pictures didn't we on the on the TV screens and in the in the the media and now as I say this this blame game looking at who's responsible and just asking whether Britain uh, and I imagine this is the same for other countries as well whether something more could have been done to save these poor people
0: it was astonishing that the number of people that at least the British have left behind I think it's up to 1100 uh, which is I mean you when they when the final flight from the from from Kabul took off last night you just wondered what night these people were Going to have and what they face this morning, um, Florian. How much coverage is there being given to this in 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 Switzerland? I mean, it is an, it is an enormous global event. Switzerland's involvement um, is not inconsiderable, isn't it? I mean, okay, 387 people were were repatriated from 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 Afghanistan compared with the thousands that the British evacuated from Kabul and the tens of thousands that the United States did. But but what are the repercussions that are being felt where you are?
1: I mean, it's it's of course also dominated the news um, all all you know throughout the week in the international. And parts of all the newspapers and, and you know, online segments. Um, Switzerland itself, you know, as you said, has evacuated um, um, just under 400 people out of, out of Kabul. Um, and there is surprisingly little political debate about this because I find it quite disgraceful, to be honest, for, for a country like Switzerland. I mean, of course, there were only small humanitarian operations, but also, um, you know, um, Switzerland basically just evacuated direct staff So also local staff, but only the directly employed and their families. And of course, we know, you know, there were hundreds of people, you know, who were working very closely with them, who were contractors, um, who were like perhaps part-time, not consistently organizations that were closely affiliated with, you know, the humanitarian mission that Switzerland was um, conducting in Afghanistan. And all of those, they were um, left out. So I think, you know, there is much more. political, I think, debate to be had about this. And I um, would personally have hoped that Switzerland would, you know, live up to its humanitarian tradition um, a bit more and, you know, um, be more inclusive in a sense, or at least try to, you know, get as many as possible out. And then, on the other hand, you know, it has to be um, admitted that it is extremely difficult for a country like Switzerland, without any military presence in Afghanistan, to actually do this. So we've had, you know, some, I think a dozen of soldiers um you know flown to kabul and even for them to get to kabul it was a nightmare because you know there was no swiss plane flying there so they had to you know land in i think it was uzbekistan and then you know we rely heavily on support by the germans and the americans so it's kind of you can only do that much if you don't have a real local presence so i think you know they tried but i think more could have been done for sure.
0: This became a very British story, didn't it? For here in the United Kingdom, this was, you know, approaching twenty years since since the, the British forces went in uh, with the United States into Afghanistan to get rid of uh, to get rid of ostensibly Al Qaeda. Um, the, the 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 fact is is that. This I wonder just how much soul searching there will be done after this, Simon. Given the fact that the way things are, we have COP, we have the climate change conference COP twenty six coming up next month. That will grab the headlines. We still have the the the, the, co, the way that the pandemic has been held by the British government, and you you just think this is a another moment when the British government has, and has not covered itself remotely in glory, but does it matter because something else is just around the corner that could be the most cynical way of t- thinking <laughs> do about do. it but you know this thing that things will pass and afghanistan will be forgotten i mean let's be honest until about a year ago afghanistan was not in the headlines anymore it had gone away um despite the fact that you know it was not without its problems and thousands of refugees were fleeing i think there are a million afghan refugees in pakistan alone at the moment and this is before the taliban came back
3: yeah this is um i think it's one of those interesting issues isn't it that to what extent does this play with ordinary voters who might be concerned with what they call pocketbook issues you know which you know, it sounds awfully cynical but i think there's a there's a bigger problem here for the for the uk more than many other countries and that is partly due to do with the special relationship you know we're very closely associated with the us we're obviously very close closely associated militarily and diplomatically with afghanistan you know uh, which we invaded of course in the 19th century there's also uh, connections and parallels with Britain backing George Bush back at the you know in, in two thousand and three to with the invasion of Iraq. So um, obviously, like, like Foreign says, you know every country uh, has to think about its uh, its humanitarian obligations. But I think for the UK, there's far more politics um, going on here, and um, the fact that uh, this government that Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, you know, was was on holiday and people said he should have been back and dealing with this. And so, to some extent, this has turned into a sort of a particularly difficult issue, not just for Britain, for, but for, for this government. Um, there's an interesting piece in the Sunday Times uh, here by uh, Stephen Bush, who is a political editor of the left-leaning New States, remember, but he's writing in the Sunday Times, suggesting that um, that the UK could... Form some kind of, or find find itself almost pushed into some kind of military alliance with France, um, and the you know the the the, the sort of uh, the. the special relationship with the US notwithstanding there could be some connection here with the two countries um, forming some kind of uh, not a formal EU but a sort of more sort of pragmatic um, military alliance to to, uh, defensive alliance so that that will stick in the guts of of many uh, 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 Tory uh, MPs I'm sure but it would be interesting to see how that develops
0: Florian what are your thoughts on that? The the fact that remains that the the British and the French have not been getting along well for quite a while now I think we can say quite safely <laughs> um, and the fact is that they may be they may be forced to work together with this one i mean mili- military um, you know the military are generally quite good at working with each other in in international situations um but this is this isn't going to sit neatly is
4: it
1: yeah, I think it's interesting if you look at, you know, of course, in the context of of Brexit and um, in the context um, th- that we all know and what Simon mentioned, you know, that this special relationship to the U.S. is probably, I would assume, you know, it's it's going to weaken over time. You know, it's 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 not going to be the U.S. main foreign policy priority, and actually quite far from from its main priority. So um, then the question is, you know, who do you um, enter? Into alliances with for the UK and kind of the same thing is is valid for France because France finds itself in the European Union and it is literally um, I would say the only country in the European Union with significant um, military cap- capabilities, especially you know um, abroad, um, you know beyond kind of only defense and is able to you know lead operations um, and and not just you know contribute as for example the German the German forces do. So it's kind of those two if they want. To, to maintain their their military strength they both have to look somewhere for allies and you know they might find that you know across um, across this little little dip of ocean there might be um, the most suitable partner so I don't know how this will play out and whether you know there will be some sort of more formal um, cooperation in the future but I think they're kind of, um, they will be drawn towards each other whether they want or not in the, in the coming years.
0: Florian Negley and Simon Brooks, stay with us uh, you with Monaco on Sunday. We'll be back in a moment with a look at what's happening in Profile magazine in Austria. Welcome back. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's continue now with a look into what's going to be on the pages of a brand new edition of Austria's Profil magazine. Joining me on the line is Tessa Shishkivitz, the Publications UK correspondent. Good morning, Tessa. Good to have you with us this Sunday.
5: Good morning,
0: Emma. Um, right, let us begin with, continue a little bit about what we were talking about a moment ago, uh, Afghanistan and the, the the jobs that are remaining for, for those in the European Union or right across the rest of the world, the tasks that lie ahead for countries to try and absorb um, any kind of issues or, or, or problems or Afghan Afghan refugees. Um, tell us what's happening in, in Austria.
5: Well, Austria, uh, you know, is a militarily... Uh, neutral country so we are not part of the uh, NATO operation in Afghanistan and also in that sense did not have uh, to retreat from there but there are Austrian citizens um, still in Afghanistan and there is a story that my colleagues uh, did this week which is astonishing about a young uh, Afghan-Austrian couple who got married in Herat on the 8th of August and on the morning after their wedding, they left all their wedding dresses behind and tried to get to the airport in Kabul to return, return to Austria, uh, which as you can imagine uh, was an ordeal of some sort. and. Thanks to the help of a Hungarian soldier who pulled them over the wall into the closed-off uh, airport uh, area, they actually managed to go on a plane via Uzbekistan to uh, Budapest, from which they had to make their way uh, home to Austria by themselves, which is not a problem, as you can imagine. But it is, on the background of a lot of criticism uh, that this story was written. Uh, And you can feel that also in the text of my colleagues because the Austrian government was one of the few governments who tried uh, to lobby the European uh, Commission to uh, keep up deportation of deportations of Afghan uh, refugees that have been denied asylum in the European Union, even uh, when uh, Afghanistan was already about to fall to the Taliban during these last uh, very dramatic days and weeks. So uh, it is quite astonishing that uh, the Austrian government has taken this hardline position, even under these circumstances. And stories like this in Profil this week show that it is really up to very very brave civilians and some help like this hungarian soldier helping them to get out of afghanistan to prevent further further uh, tragedies
0: what's been the reaction to such a, a hardline approach I mean, I mean, I was, I was in Austria in 2015 when you couldn't move through um, the Viennese central station for, uh, for for refugees and out into the into the, into the countryside. At least you had a feeling that when refugees were brought in, they were placed in in buildings out of villages. They were kept very much out of the uh, out of the community. That has changed, though, because obviously people have had to integrate into society. So why
5: this incredibly hardline approach? Well, the government uh, that we have now is a coalition government of a populist right-wing chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, who basically keeps the far-right voters in Czech and in his camp by having very tough stance on immigration. Um, From the point of view of a power game, he is quite successful. From the point of view of a moral stance in the face of a tragedy, as we see it in Afghanistan now, it is quite questionable. And it has led to an enormous amount of criticism in Austria by the civil society, also by Um, by other political forces. The problem is that usually the uh, opposition to um, hardline immigration stands um comes from the green party for example but the green party is in coalition with sebastian kurz and that makes it more complicated <laughs> for them to be uh, to raise the criticism necessary in a moment like that and so i don't think that the austrian government will change their position very much and um and they have now asked for deportation centers to be established more or less uh, in uh, surrounding countries uh, from Afghanistan because even Austria at the moment is not able to deport um, asylum seekers to Afghanistan since, as you know, the airport in Kabul is closed for incoming flights.
0: Let's move on to an astonishing domestic political scandal in
5: Austria at the moment, the
0: rise and fall of Heinz Christian Strache. Um, sent to prison this week or given a 15-month sentence at least for offering to change a law to benefit a friend's private medical clinic. Tell us who he is and and what's been happening and and how profil has been covering it, Tessa.
5: It's really an interesting story because uh, this trial against Hans Christian Strache ran throughout the summer. And at the beginning, uh, my colleagues were not convinced that the judge would hand down a guilty verdict. It is about a corruption case, which is somewhere between favoritism and bribery. So Hans Christian Strache, who was the vice chancellor and chef of the uh, far-right FBO party, had a friend who was a business, part- business- businessman owning a private, a private clinic in Vienna and he wanted this to be included in some sort of fund and he needed a change of law and strache after uh, a few donations to the party coffers. Uh, agreed and lobbied uh, to get this law changed. So uh, this is a relatively small case, but it comes on the backdrop of a two-year investigation of the economics and corruption state attorney now into investigating fraud and bribery charges that all came out um, of this famous Ibiza video uh, that was um Uh, that that ended the coalition between far-right FPÖ and conservatives in Austria in 2019. So for the past two years, the judges and the investigators are contemplating who to uh, bring uh, charges uh, against, and this uh, verdict this week against Strache might point uh, the direction to more of these kind of corruption cases being raised. And that will lead to a few ex and current ministers uh, ending up with at least one foot in prison. Strache himself, uh, of course, um, is appealing this uh, verdict and the 15-month prison sentence was conditional in the first place. But it can really change the attitude in Austria in the long run that favoritism is considered to be a minor crime and has nothing to do with corruption. In fact, it might open the the, the way to taking it a bit more serious and understanding how much favoritism is corruption and might really uh, it might be time to change it and become a bit more serious about it. Um, let's move
0: on. And it is it is connected, isn't it, to your, to your front page um, this weekend, um, talking about people's inability to say sorry. Um, it's an important issue and politicians have a, a really bad time trying to actually utter those words. What Tell us about your article.
5: Well, the cover story this week, it's sort of... Um, It's not exactly on the lighter note, but it takes sort of it takes a historic uh, and broader approach on why it is so hard for politicians to say sorry. It takes um, an incident in Germany with the uh, German foreign minister Heiko Maas as an example for a minister who can actually do apologize, uh, who can apologize for something he did. And because in the middle of August, Maas was quoted that he was sorry that the German government did not understand how quickly the Taliban would take Afghanistan. And that was a moment where we in Austria were uh, soul-searching a little bit, because in Austria, sorry seems to really be the hardest word for many. Um, And so Profil in the cover story now looks at a historical Uh, moment how Austria dealt with the responsibility for the Second World War. This is one of our usual exercises because the trauma sits deep that Austria pretended to be a victim of the Third Reich and not one of the uh, helping hands and one of the perpetrators during the Holocaust. And uh, and it uh, explains also with an interview with the former chancellor, Franz Franitzky, who was the first one in 1991, so almost a half a century after the end of the Second World War, how he took responsibility for uh, uh, Austria being part of the of the uh, machine of the Third Reich. So he is also in this interview, Wranitzky is explaining that uh, an apology is very difficult for people One, if you don't have the, the right consciousness for it. So in Austria, the war was one of these uh, very difficult uh, moments to come to terms with. Um, Till today, of course, in Austria, uh, to say sorry for mistakes is not a very uh, common feature in contemporary politics. Uh, For example, the interior minister Karl Nehammer is being criticized in this article because uh, in this big terrorist attack that happened recently in Vienna a year ago uh, in the center of Vienna, uh, the uh, officials in the interior ministry actually did really not enough to prevent this attack and to, to observe and super so to the, the surveillance of the uh, possible terror, terrorist attackers was not done properly. But he till today has not uh, apologized and the, and the families of the victims are still waiting for an apology.
0: Tessa Shishkovich, thank you so much for joining us on the line on Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Um, let's bring you back in, Simon. I mean, listen, you are a political commentator. You have advised and done comms for, for politicians. Why can't people say sorry?
3: Because the public won't let them, perhaps, they would argue anyway. Sorry, that's not my personal view. But yeah, no, I I agree. I I think absolutely, if a politician just put their hands up and went, sorry, we made a mistake, I think it would be hugely refreshing. And um, I think even though their political opponents would jump all over them, and we in the media would have a field day... I think a lot of voters, a lot of, to use the awful word, ordinary people, would just think, all right, fair enough. That is really different and honest. And I like that. And I always think from my personal life that if you apologise for something, it's not a sign of weakness, is it? It's actually a sign of strength, isn't it? Because a sort of confidence. Put your hand up. We made a mistake. Um, you know, and we're we going to do better from now on. So, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think if any politician had the courage to do it, they'd probably do very well.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Simon. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. The time here in London is 9.47. Let's head to Ljubljana, though, now, to, to, to uh, where we can be joined by a Balkans correspondent, Guy De Good morning, Guy.
2: Good morning, Emma, and good morning, everybody.
0: It's wonderful to have you with us. Um, so, tell us what's happening where you are.
2: Well, first of all, let's look at Serbia, where um, we're fond of referendums in this region, and Serbia's president, Aleksandar Vucic, has been speaking out this weekend, promising a referendum on... Wait for it a lithium mine uh, in Serbia. Um, this is referendum worthy because it's being attra- it's attracting some controversy in Serbia over possible environmental damage, but also very interesting on a sort of European-wide level because it would be the first large-scale uh, lithium mine uh, in the continent of Europe, and Rio Tinto, the mining giant, wants to stick um, considerable billions of dollars into the project, uh, so it would be quite a big thing all round in terms of transition towards zero emission energy.
0: What are the chances of people turning around and saying, no, thank you, we don't want this mine?
2: Yeah, I think somehow the old adage with Serbia, well the old adage about referendums I think particularly applies to Serbia, never hold a referendum unless you're sure that you're going to win it. So being that Alexander Vucic tends to, as his critics put it, uh, have a very strong level of control over every aspect of life in Serbia, I can't really see him agreeing to hold a referendum unless he's going to get the result that he wants. And if he's decided that he wants a referendum on the Rio Tinto investment in a lithium mine in the Yadar Valley, he's going to be pretty sure that that's going to go through. Whatever method um, one would uh, see that support being drummed up, uh, we'll have to see.
0: It's interesting to think that actually a country would offer to hold a referendum on on the introduction of a mine. This is clearly an enormous national deal.
2: Yes, it it is because, you know, Serbia's been through a rough time in, in the past 30 years or so and To find itself now potentially at the forefront of one of the great movements globally which is this transition to zero emissions um, energy um, and electric mobility that that's quite a big thing potentially for the entire country you can rebrand it potentially in a very positive way but on the other hand I think a lot of people have looked into these things very aware of the so-called resource curse uh, where you get countries I mean a prime example would be about an African country like Nigeria which is very rich in oil and yet that doesn't Seem to have, as uh, the phrase goes, trickled down uh, to its people at all. In fact, it's it's caused enormous problems um, in its society and environmentally. And people in Serbia perhaps don't have the confidence and the strength of their institutions uh, that the uh, the benefits of a lithium mining operation would come down to them.
0: Let's stay in Serbia for rather an astonishing sort story. Now, let, let's be clear: we don't normally do celebrity here at Monaco, but this is a celebrity story of a rather unusual kind.
2: It's hugely unusual. Um, <laughs> listeners who, uh, who who would occasionally watch Only Fools and Horses, the, the venerable British sitcom, will be aware of the, the spiffy character, Boise. Um, well, he's played by an actor called John Chalice, and he's applying for Serbian citizenship. And the reason he's doing this is he's discovered exactly how popular Only Fools and Horses is in Serbia. Um, he went there, was received like a, a, a visiting royal, and and now he's applied for citizenship of the country because he's decided that he loves it so much. And and he's not actually making this up. In, in my years of living in Serbia, which was, was five years between 2012 and 2017, it was obvious that Only Fools and Horses is the best loved TV programme in Serbia. They're absolutely fanatical about it. Bars are named after it, restaurants are named after it, and, and people, once they learn that you're British, will, will start saying lovely jubbly to you on, 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 on you know, any particular uh, excuse they can find. So, so it's a massive cultural thing. And uh, to have one of the actors from Only Fools and Horses applying for citizenship of Serbia, believe me, is going to be huge news in Serbia.
0: Why is it so popular?
2: Well, people say, and, and I can see this, that there's, there's a certain um, a, a affinity between the, the main characters, the Trotter brothers, who are constantly wheeling and dealing and trying to find their way to a better life, and how things are in Serbia, particularly in the area of New Belgrade, which has lots of these concrete blocks similar to the, the topography of Peckham as depicted in Only Fools of Horses and the idea of these people are trying to get out of these concrete concrete blocks and, and, and into the promised land and uh, they really feel for the, the Trotter brothers and how they're trying to do it and see the, their own struggles mirrored in that at least that's a, they might, they might just think it's a good laugh though, Emma. I
0: was about to say that's an incredibly deep answer to why do people find, find a... a, a a rather old sitcom, so great. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: but it's on all the time. I mean, any channel, you'll you'll find a, an episode of Only Fools and Horses playing at any given point. It's it's still current
0: goodness me. Guy Delaney, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me on the line from Dufour 90s, Florian Eggly, regular voice on this programme, and also Simon Brook here in London. Florian, welcome back. Are you a fan of Only Fools and Horses? I'm going to hand, put my hands up and say it's a flat no from me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I must say, it, I, complete ignorance. I don't know it. So it hasn't really come to Switzerland. There might be a business opportunity there. <laughs>
0: Florian, you're in a position of bliss. How about you? <laughs> Simon's going to suddenly confess now that he, he binge watches his right, to through s- the, right, right through the pandemic.
3: Given that it is all about Wheeler Dealers, I yeah, I'm not surprised that it doesn't resonate in Switzerland. I have to say, but that's just a <laughs> cliche, I don't know. But I have to say, I do live uh, probably three or four hundred metres away from the tower block, which the fictional ta- the tower block, which uh, the the. Uh the, 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 the program is set in and I have to say there is big controversy because it might be knocked down and replaced by uh, something more modern so um, yeah this great uh, monument to British sitcom might be no more. Oh
0: goodness me. Um, Florian one last story that you're going to have I think we're going to be joined by our, uh, our editorial director who's parked up again in a moment uh, so while, while we're waiting for, for Tyler to put the handbrake on tell us what you found in the papers.
1: So I'm going to go for the last one to politics. So Politico, which um, has been for a while now my one of my favorite, I would say, sources of political news. And it used to be free in the beginning. So that was kind of revolutionary. I remember being in Washington, um, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago, maybe it was a bit more, where these like free newspaper stands were all, all across, um, you know, the central um, DC area. Um, and you could grab your copy of Politico. So it's super niche, right? Like a newspaper that only covers politics. Very in depth um, focuses on the European Union in Europe, not on actual um, single, um, you know, um, actual nation states and countries. So it was all like it had all the components of a failed business um, um, venture, um, and yet now it was um, bought by Axel Springer for more than one billion U.S. dollars. So I think um, this is a is a nice. Piece of information because it shows how you know very niche um, news content that is in depth and covers things that otherwise wouldn't get covered um, actually you know provide value and can also be successful as a business so that was um, a refreshing note in the FT today
0: and it's a good sense of stability and uh, a healthy sign for the for the for the media world isn't it Simon.
3: Yes, it is. Um, And and as you say, Florian, it's interesting that something that's super specialist uh, can actually work. And that's, I suppose, a question for all kinds of publishers, journalists, editors or whatever. Um, Do you have to find that niche? Um, and then you can produce content, which is, uh, I agree, I love Politico, that has the authority and things that will actually make people want to pay for it, go through a paywall, which presumably Politico has.
0: Let's hear now from our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who is, uh, have you made it to the border yet, Tyler?
4: I've passed the border. I was uh, a very good Swiss resident. I paid my duty on the 44 bottles of wine uh, that are tucking around in the back of my car.
0: Goodness me, what have you brought back?
4: Uh, we've got some nice French Corte, We have some wonderful white uh, and we have some nice Blau Uh So yeah, from the French quarter, but also uh, from from Switzerland as well. So
0: I mean, and we're going so, to have we'll,
4: we'll to. We'll, we'll save a few bottles for you to work.
0: Would you mind? Can you send another rescue parcel, please? I mean, we regularly have Chandra Kurt, the the, 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 the the Swiss wine guru, and, and sort of psychological support for everybody here at Monocle on Sunday. Will you be sharing a few bottles with her?
4: Absolutely, I'm I'm due to see uh, the very dear Chandra Kurt uh, She's coming around for a housewarming uh, later in the week.
0: So, what is the plan for the for, for this week? You have Milan coming up, but uh, what's happening in Dufour and ninety?
4: <laughs> a lot happening uh, this week. We have a lot of colleagues over from uh, uh, London. So, uh, of course, it's that sort of commercial time of year. You know, just reflecting off the back of uh, the this, the Springer story, uh, and and of course, uh, you know, people and the opportunities. That are available for for niche media brands. Uh, I think we sort of we, we might count ourselves as one of those as well. So this is of course uh, the season to be talking to our major brand partners, uh, getting out there discussing a lot of projects for 2022. So there is uh, actually the middle of the week pre Milan. There's uh, there's a bit of a, a Bavarian Munich moment uh, to see some of our brand partners uh, up there, and then of course a lot of dashing back and forth uh, between Dufostra and actually a little side trip down to. To Como as well, and that's going to be uh, two, two days off for uh, for Mom's birthday.
0: Oh right, I was going to say, is, this, is that a business thing or is this is Mom's birthday? <laughs>
4: How wonderful! <laughs>
0: How wonderful! Um, tell us a little bit more about that. You know, you're talking just about the Axel Springer story there. It is. It's so reassuring, isn't it?
4: It is, and it it's it's you know, one story was probably overlooked because it wasn't big global news, but I think it was something that helped maybe certainly finance this. So the week before last, actually, so Rignier, one of the biggest uh, players in Switzerland. Uh, they had a joint venture with Axel Springer, so they just went and bought out all of Axel Springer's Eastern uh, European business, so their Hungarian uh, titles uh, and and websites, uh, likewise uh, in in Serbia as well. So that was a deal that was roughly about 250 million. And again, it, this this goes it shows a Swiss player. They want to be you know very strong, very active um, in in Eastern Europe. So they bought out all of the from Axel Springer, and obviously that 250 million went towards the one billion paid for Politico.
0: Tyler we'll let you uh, get back to your journey back to Zurich with all your clinking bottles in the back of the boot <laughs> <laughs> the best of luck for you I hope they're well wrapped up and a uh, huge thanks as well to Simon Brooke my guest here in London and to Florian Egley holding the fort in Dufourstrasse 90 and keeping the fires burning in Zurich also to Tessa Shishkovitz, on the line from Profil Magazine and Guy Delaney bringing us up to date from the Balkans and the programme was produced by Marcus Hippie our studio manager in Zurich was Tesare Bandley and Nora Hull no, Christy Evans was looking after the sound today. Apologies, Christy. I'm Emma Nelson. Monaco on Sunday is back at the same time next week. So have a good weekend. Goodbye.